ask biologists themselves and be like, so what's your definition of life? And they'd just be like, ah, uh, well, they might have some definition and then the next person would have a different one. Or more often, they would just want to like answer the question, be like, oh, I, you know, I just study pythons. Like, that's what really fascinated me. And, and, and maybe that's what made me sort of quip about, you know, astronomers having it more easy. Like, all these people study the same thing. They all study life. And uh, they either don't know how to define it, or they come up with definitions that are pretty different from each other. And that, I found that that has really stuck with me. And eventually, I just sort of felt like I need to dive deep into this. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Into the Impossible with acclaimed science writer and author Carl Zimmer discussing his latest of 14 books, Life's Edge, The Search for What It Means to Be Alive. Zimmer's writing has appeared in prestigious publications such as the New York Times, National Geographic, and Scientific American. He has a focus on evolutionary biology and genetics, and in this book, he delves deep into the origin and nature of life and the implications of manipulating it. Your fearless host, Brian Keating, probes Carl on the big questions. What is life? What is alive? How did life begin? And one of our favorite topics, is there life beyond Earth? And what does astrophysics have to do with any of this anyway? Please, keep evolving and keep Into the Impossible at the top of your feeds by subscribing and following. For some extra credit, jump over to our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating, that's Dr. Brian Keating, where you can see the video version of this and other episodes about astrobiology and related topics. Please subscribe there too. Do you want to hear more from the best science communicators and beyond? Let us know what you think in the form of a review like this one on Audible. From Brooklyn Bookworm. I love this podcast. I'm not a scientist or much of a science person. Brian's podcast and YouTube channel are great fun for the layman to be introduced to fascinating insights, exhilarating theories, and mind-expanding ideas. And now, Brian Keating and Carl Zimmer discussing Life's Edge, the search for what it means to be alive. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Welcome, everybody, to a very promising and lively episode of the Into the Impossible podcast. I started this podcast uh, in earnest in 2020 during the pandemic when I said I was your fearful host, but I've become a lot less fearful and a lot more fearless since uh, the advent of things like uh, the maybe perhaps the end of the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll talk with today's guest, who's a renowned uh, communicator, writer, thinker, uh, journalist. Uh, it's Carl Zimmer joining us all the way from the nutmeg state on the East Coast. I think I got that right. How are you today, Carl? I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> it's great to meet you. And uh, today we're talking about your latest book, your most recent book, A Life's Edge, which kept me on the edge of my seat for a variety of reasons. And it's somewhat remarkable to me that perhaps of all the authors who have graced you know, me with their presence on this podcast, this book has perhaps the highest number of intersectional networking nodes with people both <laughs> located here in San Diego, 
or former guests of the podcast or folks that we uh, did not get on the podcast because they passed away uh, and other uh, other sort of assorted connections that um, really makes this conversation unique. But I always like to have my author guests go through an exercise, which you're not supposed to do, but we don't have anything else to go on if we have not encountered your work. And that's to judge your book by its cover. Carl, I want to ask you, what is the genesis, the origin story of the title of the book, the illustration? And I always find the subtitle fascinating. And as I said, you can't say my publisher forced me to do it. Oh, it's, this is all mine. I'm happy to say. I mean, sometimes <laughs> my editor, is Stephen Morrow Dutton, is very good with titles and so on. So if I'm just, if it's not working out for me, I know he'll, he'll have my back. But um, this time around, yeah, Life's Edge... Uh, you know, I, I think what I wanted to convey with that was that, um, we have this idea of life being a thing and there's sort of a, a, a border between life and whatever isn't life, whether it's life and death or living things and inanimate things. Uh, and, uh, I wanted to, in a way I'm sort of playing with that, that, you know, this, there's this edge, like it's sharp. Um, and, you know, I wanted to sort of make the point that it's actually not, and it's very hard to find and you can get kind of lost looking for it. And that sort of leads to the subtitle, which is this search, this search for what it means to be alive, because, you know, that, that really has been, um, a struggle for, for centuries. Um, and, and it's one that, um, you know, I think biologists themselves sometimes don't even really acknowledge just how much of a struggle it has been and how much longer there is to go. And, um, you know, we were trying to figure out like what would be a good thing to put on the cover. And I, there are lots of critters that I talk about in the book, lots of cool things and, um, and, and weird things. And, um, we settled on, um, picture i'm just going to hold it up here uh, to show you this is this is a this strange rainbow colored blob this is a brain organoid um it is was started from a, a volunteer who provided skin cells and then biologists actually at university of california san diego um coaxed that skin cell with some chemicals through a series of steps and developments to become a, a neuron, a brain cell. And not just any brain cell, but the kind of early brain cell that would form in an embryo, which then multiplied and grew into something like a brain. Um, and so one of the names that people give this thing is a brain organoid. And it sits there in a bath of chemicals. It the the neurons release electrical signals, um, and you know there there are these deep questions that something like that creates. I mean, these things have only been around for a few years, but um, you know they can grow to maybe the size of a um, you know a sugar cube, a sand grain, maybe even a little bigger, um, getting towards rice grain size. Are they alive? Are they living things? You know, we, you know, when we think about ourselves as being alive, um, we really think about it in terms of our brain, you know, like, well, uh, of course I'm alive because I'm conscious. Um, and, you know, we, we actually like 
have come to define death by brain death. So here you have this thing that's made of human brain cells that behaves very much like a human brain. It's not connected to a human body. Uh, but the cells metabolize and they can divide. So what is it? Is it alive? Um, I think that would be a very hard thing, uh, a question to answer. And, and I look at other of these hard cases in the book. Yeah, the book is really sort of the exploration of, of the edge of the boundary between living and non-living. And <clears throat> I always find those things get us into trouble, you know, and things are kind of ambiguous. The human mind, as you point out in the book, you know, is is not so simple uh, to really model or predict even. And now with the advent of, you know, large language models and and, and chat GPT type things and past guest on the show, Max Tegmark, has, has made the argument that life 3.0 is is really basically here and will be abundant and perhaps um, supersede life 2.0. I think we're, I think we're like 2.1 in his, in his <laughs> cognition, uh, scheme. But, but yes, the brain organoid was a fascinating, uh, episode with, uh, with my colleague, Alison Motri. We did a conversation. We, um, I've solicited a question for you, uh, from him, which we will, uh, talk about. Uh, he raves about his experience getting to know you. And there are many, many connections here at San Diego that we'll get into, including the Miller Urey experiment. Um, Harold Urey and Miller were, were eventually here. Uh, at UC San Diego, Romeo Amaro, who's a renowned professor in chemistry, theoretical chemist, who's here, who's did a lot of um, contributions to some of your piece in the New York Times from a year or two ago when the pandemic was was sort of fresh and, and it was vital to get that information out. But I, I want to start with maybe a, a surprising connection, <clears throat> which maybe you didn't know about. Or maybe you wouldn't have agreed. Actually, you agreed to come on the podcast after a very cheeky and perhaps annoying tweet of mine where you said, imagine if astronomers couldn't agree on what a planet was, you know, and here we are. We can't agree on what life is. I said, Carl, I have news for you. I have good news and bad news. <laughs> so we, we don't agree. And it's not so simple, simplified or simple to really ascertain what is a planet, what is a star even um, what is the universe? Uh, what is the multiverse? These are all sort of ambiguous things, which relates really to the first topic that that I encountered in the book that had a nexus with this podcast. And surprisingly, Carl, that's with uh, Ben Shapiro, who is a friend of mine and has been on the podcast three times. And you talk about life. Uh, his quote is uh, one of the opening um, uh, chapters of the book. You talk about life begins at conception. The conservative pundit Ben Shapiro declared in 2017, that's not a religious belief, that's science. And I want to ask about that because um, I think these essences, essence of some of the, the polarization that we suffer in science and society is because of the difficulty the human mind has with ambiguous states. So Schrodinger type states and Schrodinger will play a big role in this podcast, as you undoubtedly are aware. So um, when you have a superposition of possibilities, live and unlive, fetus, a baby, um, uh, you know, machine gun and anti-tank weapon, uh, you know, you, you straddle the, the spectrum of, of reasonableness ranging from life begins at conception, as one person begin, uh, might believe, to life can be terminated up until the point of, you know, full, full term birth. So what, what do you think is that sort of border? I mean, is it something that we're fundamentally doomed to never really be able to resolve because of the ambiguity in these, in these matters? In other words, because the human brain is so bad at dealing between things that aren't, you know, exactly black and white. Is that part of the difficulty or is it deeper than that in the definition of what life is? 
Just a quick pause to ask you for a small favor while my thumb is occupied with old Albert on it. Yours is presumably freed up to leave a thumbs up on this video. It really helps me a lot with the good old-fashioned YouTube algorithm. Thanks a lot. Now back to the video. Well, I think in the case that you provided, um, I think the I think the problem, uh, I think one of the fundamental problems with these sorts of slogans like "Life Begins at Conception" is like I've looked like it's very difficult to to actually like figure out what people mean when they say that. Um, th there are, as I explained in the book, hundreds of definitions of life, but I, I never actually hear somebody um, actually like really, it's hard to find anyone lay it out, what they really mean when they say that life begins at conception. Um, because, and, and, you know, if, you know, there are plenty of ways in which you can think about life um, that, um, that would not begin to be mean the beginning of conception because the cells that gave rise to that zygote were themselves alive. Um, now you may, one may want to say, well, there's something special about that life, but now all of a sudden we're in a different ball game. I mean, um, that's different than saying life begins. It's saying, well, this special life begins. Or when I say life, I mean this, you know, so I don't think, you know, so, so saying life begins as a conception is, is a, it's a, it's a catchy slogan, but if you really try to uh, analyze it, it falls apart. And, um, you know, uh, as, as a society, um, you know, as, as a, as a democracy, uh, we need to, uh, come to agreements about these things in agreements with people we may disagree with. Um, there is, you know, I think it's, it's telling that, um, you know, we have ended up with, you know, I'd say a fair agreement about, you know, talking about life and when it ends. Um, you know, you know, the idea of brain death is, is a, it's, you know, in the history of understanding life, it's pretty recent. Um, it really only started to emerge in the 1960s. Um, and it, and, you know, and it emerged because uh, of technology. It wasn't because of some philosophical issue or so on. It was basically that there were ventilators that could keep people, um, their hearts still beating when otherwise they would have been dead. And Transplant surgeons were figuring out how to save people's lives by giving them transplants. And they sort of felt like, you know, we need to like, you know, for the, for, for the good, for, for the good of everybody here, we need to figure out what we mean to say that someone is still alive or someone is dead. Mm. And that definition, you know, that was hashed out very clearly, explicitly, uh, with philosophers and bioethicists and so on. And, um, you know, that definition is brain death. Now that is, can be controversial sometimes. And there, there have, I write in the book about, you know, time, you know, there have been cases where people are like, no, I don't, I don't want to accept this. And I don't want to accept what the state of California says is dead. Right. Um, but it's, but it's, it's nothing compared to the, um, conflict over, uh, over, the, over the beginning of, uh, of, you know, when, when we talk about, uh, embryos and fetuses. 
Yeah. And that, that kind of, you know, is a, is a hybrid of a hybrid or a superposition because you're dealing of life. And then on abortion, you're dealing with the, you know, the potential termination of a life, um, or potential life, the potential termination of a potential life. Um, but in, you know, in, in terms well, of, you know, but, but I mean, just to, just to, to, to point out how complicated this all is. Yeah. Um, what do we mean by a potential life? You just use that phrase as if we all, a know what it means and we all agree on what that means. Um, and I would just say like, we all need to like stop and really think more carefully about these things because it's, it is a lot slippier, slip more slippery than we may appreciate and it's getting more slippery. And so this actually brings us back to those brain organoids. Um, you know, because, uh, you know, just as technology has, you know, uh, uh, you know, created a new, um, challenge in terms of understanding when life ends, you know, in terms of, you know, brain death, ventilators, transplantation, and so on. Technology has made it possible to start creating organoids. Uh, and um, so, you know, it, every, you know, th these are just like from skin cells, yeah. as I said. So every one of your skin cells has this potential life, maybe not a life of a, you know, someone walking around and, you know, being on a podcast. Sure. But, you know, if we define life in other ways by saying, well, you know, act, you know, brain activity, brain, brain, what appear to be brainwave oscillations, um, you know, development of different, of, of different layers of the cortex, it's all there. So if our every skin cell in our body has potential life. Like what is our obligation to our skin? Cause we are sloughing off countless skin cells every single day. Sure. Sure. Are we getting rid of potential, you know, all those potential lives every day. And I'm not trying to be facile here. I'm just sort of saying, no. like, you know, let's really think about, let's think and rethink about all these terms that we're using. Cause they're not as simple as we, we tend to think they are. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Yeah, I mean, I've had on <clears throat> several eminent uh, scholars, philosophers of consciousness and the brain and, and activity, you know, related to that domain, which you just mentioned is sort of the sine qua non of, of, of life, like maybe human life or termination of the right to terminate. Although you point out in the book case of a young girl who basically goes through puberty and and menstruates and so forth and she's brained. So, um, but, but again, getting back to what I think is the, not the explanation, the resolution of the difficulty, but I think the, the origin of the problem when we talk about, well, pornography is something that, you know, when you see it, okay, that, that, that affects people, but it's very different from, you know, autonomy over one's own body or a, a living, a baby. I mean, nobody ever, you know, comes up to a woman who's carrying determines says, how's the fetus, you know, or how's your embryo? Do? And they usually say, how's your baby? When's the baby do? Um, so again, it's, it's something, you know, when you see it, but with pornography, it, it doesn't impact again, your autonomy, your freedom, possibly being made criminal in certain locations. So 
I guess the stakes are so much higher. And even with gun rights, I mean, you don't need uh, your, your, you know, you don't have to own a gun. Right. There's no there's no mandate. And I, I think even reasonable people, members of the NRA would say, look, you, you can't operate a, a portable thermonuclear device and call that, you know, part of a well-regulated militia. On the other hand, you know, having some mode of self-defense might be applicable to even uh, David Hogg, you know, or some some activist on the opposite side. So I guess I'm saying is the stakes are so high combined, you know, with this particular topic. And I think that combined with the human beings inability to deal with these questions, because we are classical creatures, we live in a quantum world. And I think it's appropriate, you know, we should turn to, to Schrodinger, who did approach this topic way back when in the in the in the 50s, when he was an eminent, you know, Nobel laureate, Coming up with the canonical equations of quantum mechanics that govern the behavior of of essentially all of chemistry and and part of physics and obviously chemistry is very deeply related to life and its existence and its definition. Now Schrodinger, like these people that I talked to, like David Chalmers, like Nick Ballstrom, and and other people, when I ask them what is consciousness, I get a twenty minute definition, Carl, and and that's okay because look, if I we can't define what it means to be a bat. That doesn't affect some woman's right to do something with her body or with a fetus or with a baby, right? But in this case, it does. So I think Schrodinger's question is is basically, you know, has not been definitively answered. But I think your book is an approach to surveying the landscape, both from the macroscopic down to the quantum. And I wonder, you know, you've done a lot of work. She has her mother's laugh is is genetic uh, and, and, and nature, the history of heritability, uh, planet of viruses. You've you've done a lot in this field. What is it about this question that seems to fascinate you so much so that you've dedicated a considerable amount of your professional career to issues of the biological sciences, life, chromosomes, and viruses, et cetera? Um, so I started out as a journalist um, at a uh, magazine called Discover, and, and you know I was. Just, you know, an assistant editor there doing some copy editing and some fact checking. And then they let me start to write little articles. And, you know, I would, you know, write about all sorts of different things because, you know, we couldn't be, you know, too precious about what we, what we would or wouldn't write about. Um, right. So I was writing about physics and, you know, technology and astronomy uh, and all sorts of stuff. And I was enjoying all of it. Um, but, um, I, it just felt like the, when I would write about biology, I just, there would just be like, I would just be reading a study and I'd say like, wait, what? Like, really? Like this exists or uh, this is how this works. Like I would, I would just continually be surprised. Like, you know, every week there would be at least one thing that just, just blew my mind. And so, and, and so once I was at the point where I could kind of gravitate towards, um, when I wanted to write about features at Discover and then working uh, with other magazines like National Geographic or The Atlantic, um, you know, biology was really what I wanted to to write about. And it just you could also just write about so much. And yet it was all interconnected in interesting ways, mm -hmm. uh, most importantly, through evolution um, that, you know, this principle uh, just helps you to understand how everything there are these themes to how thing, living things work. And not only that, but it all comes from the same common ancestors. Um, so, uh, and, uh, you know, and I've had the luxury of, you know, well, I'm, you know, I started in the nineties and so I, I didn't realize it, but I was going to be riding this wave 
of um, you know the modern science of genomics, uh, of, of molecular biology, which just you know just like took us down to this incredible level of detail that I, I really couldn't imagine before. You know, I'm you know I'm writing stories now that are regularly about you know like people who are analyzing you know the genomes of hundreds of different species. Mm. In one study, and that's just standard. Like, there's so much information, and and the insights are, are really profound. But you know, along the way, you know, I, I have to say that every now and then I'd be like, oh, okay, like clearly, like what really you know I'm interested in is life. Okay, what what exactly am I writing about? You know, and <laughs> you know, I mean, I had read Schrodinger and you know and other things, but but you know, then I would start to think like. Well, you know, have people really sorted this out very well, you know? Um, and, I, you know, I would ask biologists themselves and be like, so what's your definition of life? And, you know, I'd be talking to someone who studies pythons <laughs> or somebody who studies crabs or somebody who studies Venus flytraps. And they'd just be like, ah, uh, well, they might have some definition and then the next person would have a different one. Or more often, they would just really not want to like answer the question, be like, Oh, I, you know, I just study pythons. Like I, you know, like, and so that's what really fascinated me. And, and, and maybe that's what made me sort of quip about, you know, astronomers having it more easy. Like all these people study the same thing. They all study life and, uh, they either don't know how to define it or they come up with definitions that are pretty different from each other. And that, I found that, um, that has really stuck with me. And eventually I just sort of felt like I need to dive deep into this. And mm -hmm. it was so interesting to see how, just how long of a history, uh, there's been to this and how the struggles that people have today in the 21st century are very, they echo things in the 1800s, the 1700s, the 1600s. This is a long struggle and we're not done with it. Yeah. And I wonder how much of that is driven by, you know, something I call the academic media hype complex, which is that, you know, that we researchers need to depend on funding sources, which depend on our ability to get results and drive uh, research publications, or obtain funding, obtain students uh, to work with us and collaborate with other researchers. And I wonder if your journalistic, you know, kind of uh, neck hairs ever really stand up on edge when you're when you're dealing with people. I'll, I'll just say my friend Lee Cronin features very prominently in the book, and especially at the very end. I, I don't think it's a spoiler of a you know, the book's <laughs> been out okay. for a little while, <laughs> yeah. and and you know it's not like I'm uh, revealing you know who done it, but you know his assembly theory, and and he was asked famously, and my audience would be quite annoyed at me if I didn't at least, you know, press you on your opinions about it. But uh, they've pressed me on, you know, why, why, you know, why is it that he said in, in 2010 at his TED talk that, you know, life would be created in the lab in the next 22 months or whatever he said. And here we are, you know, 13 years later and we, and we can't seem to, to come up with it. I wonder what do you believe is, is, you know, the job of a, of a journalist communicating to the, to the public or a popular science author uh, both of which careers you, you've you've uh, and you've enjoyed. Um, what what role do you have to sort of you know call out like this doesn't really? I mean, you guys have been saying similar things as you said for decades now, and and this this is true in the alien you know extraterrestrial intelligence hunting field that I'm tangentially involved with at times. Um, so, at what point do you ever inject yourself into the story? You do a lot of you know this is like a memoir. This book in a part you know you're doing experiments, you're creating you know compounds, you're meeting with uh, faculty here in California and elsewhere. At what 
what what is your responsibility as a journalist or on a mission and a popular science book to maybe expose and call out BS when you see it? Do you ever have that as a conflict? I don't see it as a conflict. I see it as, you know, one of the jobs that science writers um, and journalists more generally should do. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, when writing about science, you know, it, the, uh, the challenge is that um, there's a lot of work to be done to to explain the um, the ideas and the experiments uh, the, 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 the research, um, the concepts, uh, in, in these areas like that, that takes a lot of work and a lot of space. Um, and so, but, you know, at the same time, you know, I, I, I think it's also, I think it is important, you know, if people are, are trying to, um, you know, hype up, um, the stuff that they're doing to, um, you know, to, to take a, a skeptical look, especially, you know, if people are sort of setting their own goals. I mean, I've done that a lot. Um, I would say, um, I'd say I've done that. Um, I'm trying to think areas where I've done that, you know, the, um, well, with the, with the genome, you know, the, the human genome, you know, there, the, um, when Francis Collins and others were, were, were uh, and James Watson were, were lobbying, um, for the money to do the first draft of the human genome, it was a big ask. You know, they were wanting billions of dollars and they were um, trying to justify it. And, um, you know, they, and so they, they, they were, you know, promising that there would be a lot of medical benefits that would come out of it. And, you know, like it, it, you know, five, five, I would say like, you know, five years after the draft genome was published in, I guess, what was that? 2001, 2002, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, it's not like, you know, people were getting cured of cancer or something like yeah, that. Right. And, you know, it, like there were years were going by where, you know, critics were saying like, like what, you know, what, wait, you know, did, did you, you know, what, what about those promises that you made? And, um, you know, and, uh, you know, I think it's important to quote those promises and look at what's happened. Mm -hmm. But I, but I also think that, you know, it's even when you, you know, you know, remember the history of these things, it's also important to, to, to recognize the complexity because like, if mm -hmm. I had, if I would go say to like a cancer biologist and say, you know what? you know, like they made a bunch of promises and, you know, in, in five years, you know, there weren't any great cancer drugs that came out of it. So I tell you what, you can't use the human genome anymore. They say, whoa, 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 no, no, no. I'm sorry. I'm not giving this back. This, this, this map of the human genome is a tool that I cannot live without. And the fact is that there are a lot of uh, of, of really promising, uh, treatments today, you know, we're talking like two decades later, um, that, uh, where, you know, the human, you know, having that map of the human genome was just essential. It just was. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, if you were expecting things in five years and you started getting them in 20, you know, what is that? It, I mean, I don't think that I, I think, I think it's, it would be wrong to say like, ah, it was a complete waste. It, it wasn't. It just, you know, it, there is a contrast between 
people's expectations when the project started and how things really played out. Right. On the hype side, you know, you feature a lot of <clears throat> very interesting anecdotes that I've uh, drawn upon many times in my career, both to illustrate the kind of nexus between, you know, promotion and publication and scientific research and funding. And one of those uh, is very famous because it appears in the movie Contact uh, featuring past guest uh, Avatar, uh, Jill Tarter, played by uh, Jodie Foster. And uh, and it was written, co-written by Carl Sagan and his wife, Andrurian, who's been a guest on this podcast, as long along with her daughter. I think I've, I'm the first uh, podcaster to have both of them on, on the podcast. And when we discuss that particular movie, there's a scene in there where Bill Clinton is on the White House lawn. He's talking about how revolutionary this discovery of the signal from alien extraterrestrial intelligence is. Now, of course, that wasn't real, but the actual footage is real. And he's really talking about the discovery of these microbes found on a meteorite that landed in Antarctica, where I've been twice. <clears throat> and that discovery, and you, and you go through it. So here's a meteorite. And by the way, uh, if you have a .edu email address, you sign up for my mailing list and I will send you a meteorite. Uh, that's briankeating.com slash list because I love uh, distributing materials. But it was kind of bespeaks of not the origin of life itself, but the origin of life perhaps on Earth or some form of life coming from Mars. And I like to point out that that it took a very long time and was really, if you, if you survey even scientists and you say, what's the status of the a proof or dispositiveness of the Allen Hills meteorite in terms of life on, on, you know, for Martian microbes. And even scientists will tell me uh, that, oh, it could be still, you know, hasn't been definitively ruled out. It was published in science, as you point out. Uh, it was leaked. And then Clinton talked about it. Dan Golden used it as, as a motivation to get more funding for NASA's nascent astrobiology. The point is, a lot of people in the public never know the inside baseball unless they read this book. Um, or have seen, you know, in, in, in another format. So what obligation do you think a scientist has, you know, to maintain a budget for publicization of retractions and, and sort of to, to come clean about this? I'm thinking also of the discovery of arsenic life, also published in science, also uh, shown not to be replicable. Uh, these are huge things and it impacts the public's understanding. So do you think scientists should I, I've called for scientists to maintain some PR budget for retractions as sort of a lockbox? What, what do you think? How do you think we can handle this so that the public is not left left with a sense of mistrust of what scientists actually do? Um well, <laughs> uh, you know, the 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 arsenic life example is is a is a really interesting one. I mean, that that was a case where um, people had found bacteria in, in uh, a lake in California that seemed to be using arsenic to build their DNA, uh, which would really just be just something that we have never seen before. Um, and um, the, I remember that that hype was that was really kind of mind blowing um, from from the journal, um, and from NASA, you know, and they were just, they were just ready to, ready to launch with it. And, um, but I, you know, there were, you know, I, I, uh, uh, at the time I was writing a fair amount for slate and, uh, my editor and I, uh, Dan Engber, who's a great science writer uh, in his own right. He's at the Atlantic now. We were saying like, just emailing back and forth, like, Hey, I don't know this, 
this seems kind of funny to us. And and I had, you know, there's like, you know, this is back in the age of blogging and there was a very small blog that I, uh, a couple of small blogs that I like to read that I mean, small, just in terms of they had small audiences, um, big ideas, small audiences, but you know, I was one of them. And then they were like microbiologists and such. And they were like, <laughs> this doesn't seem right. So I just said, look, let me just go like check with a bunch of experts. Um, and so I, I think I just, you know, just emailed like a dozen, you know, top people and pretty much they are all like, this is terrible. Hmm. Like, okay, that's the story. So that's what I wrote. Like, you know, I think the headline was like, this paper should have never been published. I think that was right. in quotes. Like that was what one of these people said, you know, and, and, um, it really, you know, and, and, um, I think that that accurately reflected this sort of feeling of, of a lot of scientists and, you know, they actually then published, um, you know, uh, their own studies saying like, look, no, this was all an artifact. You know, you, you didn't, control for things carefully and so on and so forth. That is a part of science, like the, the, the sort of getting ahead of your skis. And, um, you know, it's, it's not a judgment, it's just an observation. And I start the book with someone who got way ahead of his skis about 100 years ago, James Butler Burke, uh, this physicist who thought that he had created life in the lab. And people believed him. He yeah. was being celebrated um, uh, around the world, like newspapers are calling him, you know, his, he, he published a book shortly afterwards about this incredible experiment he did with radium and protein broth. And people are saying, this is like on par with the origin of species, you know, um, mm -hmm. this is artificial life. They would use these terms and it was all wrong. It was completely, completely botched. And, you know, a few scientists, you know, um, doggedly proved that that was the case. Um, but, you know, the I, I agree that, you know, it's important to, to put some focus on, you know, the law, you know, what happens after the big flashy paper? Do, do the findings hold up? Do they not? Uh, where does science go? Because science is not just one paper, flashy paper at a time. But, you know, the fact is that um, it's a lot harder to um, capture people's interests about you know, a retraction of a paper they may barely have remembered reading about if they read about it at all five or 10 years ago. So right. um, it's not easy. And it's not just doing it doesn't necessarily uh, fix that problem you're identifying. I wonder if it's a journalism problem as much as, a, you know, as, as, a, uh, <clears throat> as a scientific problem in that, as you say, you know, we've had my own encounter with, you know, front page above the fold, in the New York Times discovery, which, you know, then later had to be rescinded the claims that we made, not that we didn't make a blunder, we didn't, uh, you know, leave the lens cap on the telescope, uh, but we misinterpreted the signal as coming from the inflationary origin of the entire beginning of time. And in fact, we had seen just specks of dust in the cosmic interstellar wind. Uh, and when that was finally retracted to, to the extent that it was, thanks to a reanalysis of our data, that was on, you know, page eight, you know, 16 of the Saturday edition, then it's the least read edition of the newspaper. So I wonder, yeah, if we can, uh, if we can sort of have both in terms of ethics, um, and in terms of publicization, there are many kind of ethical edges as well as life edges. Uh, we, we have, uh, for example, I, I did an interview with James Tour, who's, uh, he's actually a, um, uh, how shall I say? He's a, He's a messianic Jew, uh, which means that he uh, was actually born Jewish, became Christian, 
And he's extremely devout, uh, but highly cited, named distinguished chair at, at Rice University. And, you know, he, he presented a survey uh, that was done independently. I think it was done by the National Science Foundation. And it said, like, what is the – ask the public, what is the most advanced form of life that scientists have been able to create? And uh, the, the, the majority of respondents said something like a frog. Uh, there was admittedly only a few different choices. There was, you know, a cell, DNA. And of, of course, you know, it's, you know, there's nothing even remotely close to that. But I wonder, and it reminded me of, of a talk uh, of a, another study by the National Science Foundation that asked Americans how, uh, which, which happened, does the sun orbit the earth or not? And 25% of Americans said the sun does orbit the earth. Uh, and so, you know, now people aren't publishing papers anymore that say, you know, the sun orbits the earth uh, the way they might have done in, you know, Ptolemy's day in the Ptolemy times or the Alexandrian times. But uh, but people like La Jolla Denizen, uh, Craig Ventner, who's I don't believe he makes an appearance in this book, <clears throat> maybe uh, didn't. But, you know, he'll come out and say, well, he created artificial life, you know, the first artificial life. Um, but and and. Even closer to home is the case of the Miller-Urey experiment, because if you ask people, the even scientifically well-inclined people, uh, people I've had on the podcast, they'll say that the Miller-Urey experiment, you know, definitively showed that we could create, if not DNA, you know, precursors to DNA. And as you point out, it's really not true, right? So, um, how do we? What do we? Uh, you know, how, how do we combat that? Because I think the light of truth, you know, it should be most prominent, and we should be come clean about what we are able to do such that when we do make life in the lab or do discover extraterrestrial, that people will be appropriately um, uh, appreciative of it. So I, I don't know if I'm, if, uh, if there's really a question there, but I'd love to hear your, your take on it. Like, what do we, what do we make of the, of the, of the very, very large incentivization to make these bold claims and the lingering aftertaste in the public that may redound to the detriment of the public? Well, I, you know, I, I do, I do think that a, you know, a, a big challenge uh, with all this is just our, you know, that it's there's just a lot of science that gets done, and it's hard to, you know, you, we we come up with these sort of shorthands to remember what's going on, um, and. You know, I, I mean, uh, you, you know, if you talk to, um, you know, certainly in my experience, like talking to scientists, like if we if we move out of their field of expertise, um, you know, they're kind of, you know, starting a little fuzzy on things as well. And I don't begrudge them. I mean, it's just it's it's challenging. And, and I think that we just, you know, I think the way that the, the, the human mind works is to go from like, okay, here are the, you know, here's this interesting but complicated set of results to being like, oh, okay, here's this quick, quick, simple story. And I'll remember that instead, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, we, I, you know, I don't, I don't mm -hmm. think we're going to, you know, solve the problem of the human brain, um, uh, anytime soon. Um, <laughs> but you know, I, I think that, um, you know, if you want to, if you're bringing up like fundamental things about, you know, the sun and so on, like, um, you know, I don't, I don't see a place for like journalists to be like, you know, the way that news works just makes it difficult to address those sort of fundamental issues. I mean, there's another, there's another number, I think it's maybe the same survey that you looked at, my one that really caught my eyes, that actually the majority of people think that electrons are bigger than atoms. 
Mm. I mean, that's like a majority. Um, and <laughs> you know, and I'm like, that's interesting. Cause I have no idea why people would think that. Um, but most people do, and most Americans mm. who are surveyed at least. And, um, you know, we're not going to, I mean, like the format of news is not such that we will like have a headline saying like newsflash electrons are smaller than atoms. Like that's just not, that's not going to work. Um, you know, the best that I can think of is, you know, just a redoubling, uh, 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 an emphasis on, you know, better science education, uh, from kindergarten through high school. Like I just, I keep coming back to that. I just, I mean, you know, most people are not, most people are not science PhDs. Most people don't even take science, you know, take a college science class. Um, mm. this is where our focus needs to be. Yeah. Just a quick uh, closing anecdote about that survey about the sun orbiting the earth. So I, I, I cited that statistic on the occasion of Galileo's, uh, 450th birthday, I believe it was. And at his, actual final resting place slash prison in Arcetri, Italy, outside of Florence. And there was a, you know, crowd of astronomers gathered there. And I said, I, at first I showed the statistic cause it was, you know, it was kind of pertinent. It said 25% of Americans believe that the sun orbits the earth and all the Italians, Oh, stupid American. And I said, but guess what? And then I changed and I showed them the European research council did the same survey and 33% of Europeans believe that. So they're, they're really not in a position to, to judge us Americans. (laughs) Um, One of the best, uh, most enjoyable parts as a physicist was the kind of uh, delineation and the, and the, and the history of how physics has really informed biology. And I wonder if you could comment on that. What were some of the surprising things you learned about? I, I didn't really realize, you know, Delabrook, I, I obviously I knew Schrodinger, but Delabrook, obviously uh, Lisa Meitner was an X-ray crystallographer. Um, I believe um, uh, Watson was also trained as a physicist. Uh, uh, Crick was trained as a physicist, perhaps. Um, there are many, many crossovers between physics, which is reputed to be the science of the 20th century, and biology, which is reputed to be the science of the 21st century. So what were some of the surprising findings and learnings that you encountered along the way of writing this book? Um, I, I think it was very interesting to kind of get into the perspective of people like Delbrook and Schrodinger and these other physicists <clears throat> who were... Um, and, and, you know, and, and, and Crick, I mean, they're looking at you and you just thinking of from their perspective as people looking at life and, you know, from the, from their experience, you know, studying radioactivity, studying quantum physics and so on and saying like, huh, okay. Like quantum physics, I think I get quantum physics, but life, okay, that's weird. And, <laughs> and I want to like think about <laughs> life um, as, you know, so, and they were, you know, it's very different than the, the sort of the main sort of trunk of the main channel of the history of biology where you, you had um, naturalists, you know, you had, you know, starting with Aristotle, you know, just splashing around lagoons and, and, you know, dissecting uh, uh, aquatic uh, creatures and so on, you know, all the way on through, you know, Linnaeus, you know, marching around in Lapland and capturing every living thing he could find. Um, So, so that, um, you know, obviously biology has <clears throat> taken in all of the, the tools of physics uh, and, and a lot of the concepts of physics. Um, 
at a kind of a lower level in the sense of like, you know, um, obviously like, uh, you know, thank you physics for the electron microscope. Thank you for, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Crystallography. Oh my goodness. Uh, and you know, and now we have, you know, fancy, fancier things like cryo EM and, and so on. And that's all great, but you know, like it's, you know, for a day-to-day, you know, biologist, I might be like, okay, great. So now I can look, really look at the ribosome and how it makes proteins. And that's all I care about. That's all I want to do. I love looking at ribosomes and that's all I care about. But, you know, the fact is that a lot of these physicists were actually like saying, no, 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 wait, I, I don't care about the, the many, many details of life. And there are many details of life. I'm, just, I want to know this big question, the question the Schrodinger asked, what is life? Like, I want to ask as a physicist. And, um, and you know, it's really neat to hang out with the physicists today who are still asking that question and still working on these theories and, and doing some experiments to try to get at that. And, um, you know, I, I maybe, you know, maybe these physicists will actually like, you know, build a theory of life. Um, and then we will, you know, maybe someday we will look at life as just a property of matter. Um, in the same way we think of superconductivity as a property of matter, you know, like not everything has superconductivity. Um, but there's not just one thing that has superconductivity. Like there's just like these, you can, you can have a theory to, to understand how under some circumstances, some materials will have superconductivity. Maybe we can say the same things about life someday. We can't do it now. Right. We don't have a theory of life. Right. And maybe like superconductivity, it'll emerge as a consequence of a more, uh, more com- uh, deeper complexity that's hard to understand by merely breaking it into the sum of its, of its parts. Uh, I wonder as we're coming up on the hour and I have uh, several questions from the audience and also, um, uh, my, my existential questions that I love to ask my guests, if you're willing to answer one or two of those, um, when we, uh, when we think about the discovery of extraterrestrial life, moving from the generation of life on earth, perhaps, but, but extraterrestrial life, what do you think it would mean to discover there's some other form of life? Perhaps there's life here as past guest, Paul Davies, uh, you know, may, might hypothesize that there might be a shadow biosphere hiding in plain sight or lurking on some minor body in our solar system. What, what, what would you think would be the impact of a discovery? Let, let's just not let's not say, you know, uh, Ellie Arroway discovering, you know, 5D tesseracts and whatnot. But <laughs> let, let's restrict it to the slime mold um, planet you know, orbiting around Proxima Centauri B and, and that's all there is. And, but what, what do you think that would mean for our understanding, not only of life, but of ourselves? Well, I mean, scientifically, I think it would be a huge deal because, um, you know, you, you either it will be a lot like life as we know it, or it will completely expand our concept of what it means to be alive. Um, you know, all of life on earth is kind of boring in the sense that, um, it's all, you know, DNA as far as speak for yourself. You, you've never babysat my kids, Carl. It's <laughs> well, there They're might not be interesting extensions. Yeah, no, no. I, I mean, boring just, uh, you know, not, not, not on the, in the phenotype, but when you get down to the genotype, you know, when you get down to those molecules that are carrying on life through the generations, it's all DNA. And it's like, I mean, the code is, is pretty much the same. It's just, it's, um, 
So it would be amazing, as Paul Davies has suggested, like maybe there's RNA life that's lurking, you know, in the tiny pores of rocks where DNA life can't go and eat it, you know, maybe. Or a fifth um, base or something, a fifth base, right. or, you know, Z. Yeah, yeah. Right. But, um, uh, you know, but, you know, I think what's interesting is that uh, is it, it's been interesting to, to, to look at the work at, at how um, astronomers have been looking um, at, at and discovering exoplanets. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think we kind of looked at our own solar system and said, like, oh, yeah, I guess we get planets. So it'll be just like this. Well, no, it's like it turns out like planets around other stars are kind of mind-blowing they just they don't play by quite play by the rules we thought the planets played by you know so you just have you know these these huge planets right next to their sun or you'd have just you know planets going around dead stars or just all all sorts of stuff and so um it would be exciting if life you know uh, elsewhere in the universe challenged us that that way um, even if it doesn't, just finding it would be uh, amazing. I, but you know, I, I think that you know, to to a culture that has you know that has uh, where you know we just we watch science fiction movies and the aliens are all you know bearing a very striking resemblance to Hollywood extras. It's like I, I <laughs> think bigger foreheads, you know, I think, yeah. Yeah, I just think people might you know feel uh, I. I <clears throat> I hope people will be able to to to, to feel some, some of the excitement that scientists will feel, even if it's just slime molds or bacteria. Um, I, I still think that that will be uh, things like that. Um, Single celled life will be uh, amazing if <laughs> it's out there. Maybe it's not. Right. Yeah. That, I mean, my uh, basic prediction is that we won't find intelligent life because simply the argument always goes, as made by Carl Sagan and Andrian in that Apocal book uh, contact, <clears throat> where they say, you know, if there's not life out there, it's an awful waste of space. But, you know, Carl, I've been to Antarctica twice, uh, to the South Pole even. And, you know, Antarctica is one seventh of the Earth's space in terms of continental uh, shelf. And uh, there's not much life there. There are a couple penguins near the ocean, some seals. Uh, there aren't even very many microbes and certainly not a lot of, uh, of flora. And so just saying that there is, you know, a surface area on other planets, perhaps, uh, which is undoubtedly true, has no bearing on whether or not it's probabilistic. And in fact, I'll run this argument by you. Tell me what you make of it. Uh, it's not something I'm really an expert in. But the fact that we haven't really discovered well we certainly haven't discovered life in our solar system outside of earth uh we've set in the thin kind of veneer that that covers the earth's surface or tardigrades that float around i guess but that's about it um and yet the earth has been exchanging material just like the allen hills meteorite came from mars um and this meteorite came from the asteroid belt so too are pieces of the earth potentially carrying base pairs and dna enzymes and maybe even microbes and tardigrades uh, landing on presumably on landing on Mars and Celadus and other places. So the fact that we don't see, you know, any evidence for it, of course, you can't say lack of evidence is evidence of absence, as Carl Sagan also said. But um, I wonder, it has to tell you something about the prior probability distribution. The fact that, you know, if you did see some form of life, you'd say, okay, it is once life gets started anywhere in a solar system, it immediately spreads. That can't be true. 
because we don't see it anywhere else but Earth. So anyway, you can react to that if you choose. But I have a, a series of audience questions that I love to ask, also ask you. Well, you know, I, we we haven't looked uh, all that hard for life. Put it that way. I mean, you know, we may have we could have potentially contaminated Mars already with mm -hmm. our spacecraft, and but we don't know yet because it's not as if there's uh, a microbiologist up there who is doing the kind of <laughs> research to find those things. There could be subterranean life at, in Mars and we have, you know, our probes have not yet really like done the, done the work to, to find it. They found some mm -hmm. odd plumes of methane that might or might not be life. We don't know, but you know, like there's, you know, as you say, like, I mean, on earth, you know, we, we have Antarctica, we have the oceans, which, you know, we, we've barely explored. Um, and, um, yeah. you know, you're not going to, you know, if you've never seen a blue whale and you go, you know, go take a swim and you don't see a blue whale, that doesn't mean the blue whales aren't out there. <laughs> right. Or a giant kelp ball like you encounter here in Long <laughs> Shores at the very outset of the book. Okay. Some questions if you would uh, give me your forbearance to uh, to ask of you. So sure. I asked <clears throat> our friend Allison Motri, who, uh, reminder, we did a podcast with him in studio here at UCSD a couple of months ago. And that title of that episode is uh, To Help His Autistic Son, He Grows Brains in Space. <clears throat> a little bit of hype on my part, but it, but it is true. He has a, a very personal mission, as you know, uh, to conquer autism and to explore the deeper regions of the human brain. Allison says, oh, yes, I would love to hear from him if his concept of life has changed after he wrote the book and what he would call life now, even outside of Earth. Enjoy the conversation he is very nice to talk to. <laughs> um, yeah, I, 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 I was kind of, you know, life concept agnostic before. I think I'm more so now. I think that, <laughs> um, I think I, 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 the philosopher Carol Cleland, I think really makes a very, um, compelling case. I feel it more compelling now that, um, it's just the wrong, way it's just the wrong way of going about understanding life that that um scientists should be trying to to find a theory that explains what we call life um it's fine if we sort of have sort of placeholders for uh for what life is but i, I you know life transcends all that um i i feel that more so than ever having worked on this book mm. oh my god and uh, next, turning to a question tangentially related to a future guest on the podcast, hopefully, uh, Professor Romeo Amari here at UCSD. And that's your work on COVID. Um, this is sort of a, a kind of update uh, from the audience members. And then I have a follow-up. <clears throat> sort of what, what is your what is the best current thinking about the origin of COVID? Is, uh, you've, you've written definitively about it in the New York Times and elsewhere. What, what do you think is the origin of, of uh, we started off with like religion. So now we got to pivot to something very <laughs> controversial. We won't get into anti-vaccination though. Don't worry. Uh, but tell me what is the best thinking or perhaps your best understanding of how COVID in fact originated? Well, you know, I mean, the, the, the uh, there has been, um, you know, there's been a group of, of virologists who have studied, you know, the emergence of viruses for a, a while, and they have published a couple papers in Science where they make the case that um, that there was a spillover, multiple spillovers at a uh, market 
in Wuhan. Uh, and, you know, they, uh, you know, they are, they marshal evidence just in terms of like distribution of, uh, of samples in this, this marketplace and, the, and an analysis of the mutations in the virus. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, if people want, you know, to, to have like a, you know, video footage of a raccoon dog that's like coughing and then that person next to that raccoon dog inhaled it and that person tested positive and then you can trace from there, they don't have it. Uh, we will, we would never be able to get that. Um, the animals, um, that were, that were there, uh, were all killed, um, so, you know, like we're, we're in a tough situation now there have been, you know, certainly in, in, you know, congressional hearings talking about, um, uh, you know, raising questions about what was happening miles away at the, uh, Wuhan Institute of Virology. Other people have pointed out this Chinese center for disease control had a, had a facility that was closer to the market. Um, you know, like, uh, if somebody were to say like, you know, okay, we have, here we have this, you know, this, this lab data that shows that, you know, here's this virus that was collected from, I don't know, you know, let's say, uh, Southern China and it's the sequence of almost SARS-CoV-2 and then we did this to it and that was the SARS-CoV-2 genome, then, you know, then you could say, aha, but you'd still have to explain why it is that a lot of the early cases appear to have been, um, not just people associated with the market, but just people who lived uh, near the market. Um, those those things have been challenged by people who say, oh, well, you can't trust those early cases. Well, you know, uh, that's that's what we've, we've got so far. So, you know, I, I'm sure this is not a satisfying answer for anybody. It shouldn't be. Um, and, uh, you know, I it, it would, uh, we could certainly stand with, looking at more information. Um, and, um, you know, uh, I, I do think that, you know, it's, it's also important to, uh, to recognize, uh, that, um, spillovers are a regular part of, of, uh, the world of pathogens. And, um, you know, we've seen it with HIV and SARS and influenza and so on. And so, um, you know, regardless of the specifics of what happened here, we, we know there are lots of coronaviruses in bats. We know they get into other hosts. We know there's influenza. We know there's Nipah, blah, 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 blah. There are a lot of viruses that are knocking at the door. And so, you know, we need to... And, and be, also the <clears throat> the gain of function <clears throat> type behavior. You know, I've had COVID only once, thankfully. So, somehow my wife's managed managed to avoid it, uh, despite the numerous children running around and uh, all of us having gotten it. Um but, you know, I got it, Carl, and, and I, I, you know, I dropped five pounds. And I, I always joke, I, I dropped five pounds from my chin to my stomach. Uh, but no, I, I lost weight. You know, I lost my sense of taste and smell. And it was clear to me there were some, you know, benefits. I mean, I hate to sound callous at all, but I could envision after that, and especially, um, maybe you'll be sorry I'm saying this, but after reading your book, I almost thought, well, what if like some alien civilization is using us for gain of function for them. Uh, I mean, it's pretty far-fetched, especially for someone that doesn't believe there's, you know, advanced extraterrestrial intelligence that's regularly visiting us here in Southern California. But, um, but I wonder, Carl, you know, is it, is it not true that gain of function has potential utility 
And to say that, you know, we weren't pursuing that in some level, I mean, wouldn't that be kind of negligent on the half of, on behalf of people that support scientific research and so forth that maybe there are bent, not, not COVID, especially it killed a million people plus worldwide, but this concept of gain of function, do you see it as having value? Um, well, you know, the term gain, well, I mean, gain of function is, it's not quite as, as uh, slippery a term as life, but it is pretty slippery. Like <laughs> when people talk about gain of function in a sort of casual way, I think like, okay, well, what are you talking about? Are you talking about, um, I, I think people are, uh, like there's tons of science that goes on that might be described as gain of function where, you know, cells are being manipulated. So they start doing something they couldn't do before, you know, yeah, you know, like, like, you know, like let's, uh, you know, our insulin, where does our insulin come from? Our insulin largely comes from bacteria that uh, were engineered with human gene, human insulin genes. That's where we get our insulin from. That's gain of function. If what you're saying is like, you know, manipulating the genes of an organism so they can do something they couldn't do before. Bacteria right. were not making human insulin before. Now they make it in huge quantities. Now people say, people wouldn't say like, oh, human insulin is a bad thing. They just think it's too expensive. That's the real controversy about it. Um, the reason that we're not concerned about that is because we don't think that these bacteria are going to kill us all. However, in the 1970s, I write about this in my book, Microcosm, some people did think that those insulin bacteria were going to kill us all when they were first invented. They would get yeah. out of the fermentation tanks and, the, and they would put us all in the diabetic comas. Like this was real arguments people were having. It didn't happen. So, um, you know, so, so again, we have to really be careful about what we are talking about when we talk about gain of function. And so, mm -hmm. What a lot of the debate has focused on uh, in, among scientists and in, in government circles is specifically about doing experiments on pathogens or potential pathogens, and, or I should say pathogens that have the potential to become pandemic, which sounds more precise, but what do we mean by potential? Like, what is it like, how do you know in advance if something is going to become a pandemic or not? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, when people, when people are outraged that anyone is doing any gain of function, um, I think they, you know, I, I think they're not, I think they need to look more closely at the, at all of the complexity of all this. And mm -hmm. I, you know, there are trade-offs here and there are, there are fundamental trade-offs here that I think are, we're just going to have to, you know, make a call on in, in a, you know, in a democratic process and a, a real like deliberation, because on the one hand, you know, we are very concerned about, you know, the, the I'm certainly concerned. And I think a lot of people are concerned about these uh, strains of bird flu right now that are getting into a lot of people and a lot of mammals. And, um, you know, a few more mutations and the, one of these things could really take off and, and, you know, could be worse than, than COVID. Um, you know, and, and yet, you know, we really like our, our best understanding of, uh, about the mutations that we should be concerned about. Actually, we know about them because 
somebody did real gain of function research on bird flu viruses back in like 2012, 2013. The whole... Their research freaked everyone out so much that we sort of had the whole, that's when the whole gain of function debate actually started because people, mm. because there were people, um, you know, scientists who were saying, what are you doing? You, you are trying, you know, they were basically trying to make these bird flu so they could be transmissible between ferrets. And other mm -hmm. people, were, scientists were saying like, whoa, we should not be making these things. Like, you know, it's like evolution is already like, you know, doing this. Why are we... Uh, risking this, you know, this this ferret adapted flu could get out and, and and make people sick. But you know, the fact remains that <laughs> that research went forward, and it told us a lot. It, we know what a lot of what we know about in terms of the risks we are now facing with bird flu. We're, we got from gain of function research, hmm. but it was terribly controversial, and a lot of a lot of scientists in the field thought it shouldn't have never been done. That's, that's the, that is the, the real trade-off that we face. It's not a simple uh, choice to, to be made. If we don't do gain no. of function research, we're not, we're, there are going to be things we don't know about. Right. In principle, we could head off or develop vaccines in advance. And there's a lot of uh, curative properties that could be invoked. And, but it, like everything, it should, a lot of people have said, well, look, it should never be done. It should be done, but it shouldn't be done on things that can lead to human pathogenic, uh, pathogenic response. So, uh, Carl, what are you working on now? You've done a lot in the genetic space. Can we entice you to write about what is a planet next? Or <laughs> what, what, what can we do to get you to move into the astro uh, astronomical realm? Um, you know, I, I had I did I had a little taste of that um, as I was sort of coming out of my sort of 120 percent COVID coverage all the time. <laughs> it was really nice to sort of in the past year or so to kind of start to branch out again into areas that I hadn't written about before. And, you know, now that the J, the James Webb Space Telescope is up and eye, eye is open, it's, it's fascinating. And, <clears throat> you know, I'm un understandably drawn to their work on planets and on possibly finding habitable planets. And um, I've written one piece on that and I'm, I'm, you know, keeping an eye on, on, on that research. Cause I just think that's just, it's incredible to be alive when we have tools that can let us see those things for the first time. Yeah. So Carl, I always end, uh, my conversations with a quote from Arthur C. Clarke, one of his many quotes. Uh, he's very quotable. Uh, one quote I love to quote to my department chair, frequently is uh, for every expert, there's an equal and opposite expert that usually <laughs> shuts them up pretty quickly. Uh, but I'm going to ask you a different one to comment on the following statement made famous by Sir Arthur C. Clarke that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Now I ask you, uh, if you look at the whole of human history, what is the most magical technology that human beings have ever been able to create? Um, interesting. Uh, I have to say that you know, the first thing that comes to mind is the technology that is making it possible for me to look at you in California right now and have a conversation with you. Um, I just, this, you know, this, this is kind of bizarre. Like we, we, I think a lot, a lot of people got, got accustomed to, uh, what the internet could provide in terms of connection during the pandemic with zoom. And that was a drag. And I mean, and anybody who's tried to teach by zoom as, as we have mm -hmm. knows what a nightmare it can be, but still this is 
kind of amazing to me. And, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think things that, you know, make yeah. communication possible, uh, maybe because I'm a writer, uh, maybe that's what I'm prone to, but, uh, I'd have to vote for that communication technology. Very good. Uh, so Carl Zimmer, uh, author of many, many renowned author, many, many wonderful books from Life's Edge. We spoke about today to She Has Her Mother's Laugh. We'll talk about that. I think that came out the same month that my first book came out in April of 2018. So it's the fifth mm -hmm. anniversary. So happy anniversary, Carl, to Thank that you. wonderful you book, which is lauded around the world. And this book, of course, received rave reviews. Uh, the New York Times called it, you know, shimmering and zipping with uh, with his uh, phenomenal prose. And I, uh, <clears throat> I just want to uh, thank you for sharing your time with us today. And I hope to see you back in the future. And I hope you have a magical rest of your day from here at the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination at the University of California, San Diego. Brian Keating, your formerly fearful host, signing off. Thank you, Carl. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Thanks for listening. Keep in touch and inspired by signing up for Professor Keating's Monday Magic email at briankeating.com slash list. And if you have a .edu domain, we'll send you an artifact older than the Earth, forged in the fire of an exploding star in the form of an authentic meteorite fragment. Thanks to all our viewers and listeners for helping us blow past 100,000 subscriber mark on YouTube. Please keep it growing by following, subscribing, and sharing. And remember, always be curious. Be curious.